1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of Christ. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Thank you, Miss Paula. So you're joining us in uh, week three of a sermon series in, in Thessalonians called Counter Culture. So week one, we saw how this group of believers in this um, country in Greece, modern-day Greece, were called to God. They were a new people. He called them a new assembly, an ecclesia, where normally they had been excluded, but he says, you are part of something entirely new. In week two, we heard how they had turned from idols to the living God. And so they, they had abandoned everything in their culture. And uh, this week, we're going to hear about how Paul's missionary visit to this group was entirely different from anything else that they had ever, had ever encountered. And so if you do have a, a copy of scriptures, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I do think that if you can look that up or have an open Bible, it will help you today because we're covering a, a fair amount of, of Scripture. If you ever heard somebody called an Elmer Gantry, an Elmer Gantry, this refers to a 1927 novel by a guy named Sinclair Lewis. 
And uh, it was a, a scathing review of organized religion. Elmer was uh, charismatic and personable and charming and, uh, and persuasive. However, he was absolutely morally bankrupt, and he went through various religious organizations just rising through every single one of them purely on his charisma. And he lacked any moral integrity. So to quote the novel, he had in fact got everything from the church and Sunday school except perhaps any longing, whatever, for decency and kindness and reason. His motivation was simple. Greed. Okay, he had one thing that he wanted. The, the book says he lusted for property and dignity, for house there would be all pillars and porches, his lawn smooth and spacious as a golf course, his wife to be as sleek and curved as a young heifer of the purest blonde, a Cadillac Roadster in which he could tear off the superficialities of life and just plain go. That's what he wanted. That's all he wanted. Paul's detractors insinuated that he was an Elmer Gantry. Though it's not explicit, and we kind of have to look at Paul's argument here to say, like, what was being said on the other side? We are getting a very, very strong sense that they were charging him with certain things. And Paul comes in this passage today and defends his team, and it suggests that his detractors said the reason that he had to leave town so quickly was because he was a fraud, and that he, he didn't come back to them because he was scared to. They seem to suggest that his message had absolutely no power because it was an error, and they suggested that his motives were false, driven by greed. Now, they didn't have to reach very far for this type of of, uh, illustration, because in that time, there were traveling philosophers and orators that used a lot of these various means of gaining followers. And the modern-day philosophers, some of them that we know well, like Aristotle and Chrysostom, Dio, and, and Plato, wrote about these traveling philosophers, saying, watch out for these guys. Here's how you can tell them. A second-century satirist named Lucian wrote a novel. The novel was called Alexander the Quack Prophet. All right? And uh, this is what he said of them, that they went about the country practicing quackery and sorcery and trimming the fatheads because that's what they called the public. That's what they came to town to do. So when Paul took up his quill to defend the character of his missions team, he knew, and you may remember that it was him and Timothy and Silas. And when he took up his pen and said, Silas, take this down, he knew what was at stake. Everything, everything that they had worked for. So if, if the charges that were leveled at them stuck, the, the gospel that had gone forth, the witness that, that had spread throughout the entire region, these people's hope, their conversion, everything, even their entry into the kingdom. In uh, verse 12 of our passage that we'll be considering today, Paul says, this is why I'm writing you. He says, we're exhorting each one of you and encouraging you and charging you to walk in a manner worthy of God. I want you guys to walk in a certain way. Why? Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so, yes, Paul knows that even heaven is at stake. If they buy the lie about him 
and say, like, the messenger was rotten, therefore the message is rotten, then they forfeit even heaven, and they will not enter the kingdom of God. And so to say everything would be lost if he doesn't persuade them of the integrity of his team is no exaggeration. So he sets out to defend his team by describing their visit. If you have your copy of scriptures, it won't be on the screen, but in verse 1, in verse 1 here, he, he says, are coming to you, are coming to you. His overall strategy is in, to encourage them to remember. And in the passage that Ms. Paula read this morning, there were four different times where he says, you know, you, you know, you, you yourselves know this. And he also says in verse 9, you remember. In verse 10, he calls them as witnesses. And so he's saying, don't take my word for it. Take your own word for it. You saw how we were among you. So from his description of their visit to the Thessalonians, we can learn how important it is for you and me and for any missionary, anybody who wishes to have a hearing for the gospel to live in such a way that it does not mar the gospel. See, the gospel can only be persuasive and effective to that extent. Now, this is especially important for people who live by sharing the word of God, and so definitely church leaders, but really anybody who hopes to share the truth with anybody, and that should be everybody, absolutely. We learn that it's possible that the way that this missionary team acted could have made this good news absolutely ineffective, and that's why he says, we came to you and our gospel was not in vain. In other words, we could have invalidated this message so that it was ineffective and not persuasive by the way that we came to you. Their coming could have been in vain, and their lives could have marred the message. What I'd like to do for our next 20, 25 minutes is to kind of consider uh, how can you and I live in a manner in which the good news is not hurt by our life, but is such a way that it is, per, it is persuasive to those who hear it and effective to those that hear it. How do you live like that? Paul's going to tell us. In verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds them of something that they already know. He says, you yourselves know, you yourselves know this, of the circumstances surrounding their arrival. He goes on to explain what happened to his team in the previous city, Philippi. He says, you you saw how we suffered and had been shamefully treated over in Philippi, a little to the, the east of them. And it's not incidental to this story. The whole story about what happened to them is told in Acts 16. If you've never read Acts, I mean, it is great reading. It's like an adventure story. He was flogged, and he was thrown into prison without trial. However, when the leaders of Philippi found out that he was a Roman citizen, they were horrified because Roman citizenship protected him from that kind of treatment. And so they came to him, and they took him out, and they escorted him, and they they spoke gently, but then they said, please leave. Please, so they disinvited him from the city. And so news travels. He says, as you know, now I don't know if just in the region that, you know, news just kind of spread throughout the Mediterranean, or whether he himself told them. He says, but you know our story. And uh, this is not incidental to this story because despite this, despite their treatment in Philippi, they still come and dared to speak. He says to declare to you the gospel of God. So despite the risk, despite the humiliation, 
They moved on to the next city and did it again. That's guts. Or we could call it what Paul calls it. He calls it boldness in our God. This is the boldness that comes from the help of God. This kind of boldness doesn't come from somebody who's motivated by greed. This is boldness that came straight from God. And this is the boldness of a messenger that's determined to declare to you the gospel. The gospel of who? The gospel of God. It's God's gospel, meaning that this is the good news that flowed from or originated from the very living God. And that's why he was so motivated to give it to them. I want you to think with me how this would have impacted his hearers. Don't you think that his endurance and his boldness and his tenacity impressed them? How important, they must have thought to themselves, how important must this message be for this guy to endure that kind of suffering and then come here and do it again? And those guys out there saying that he's doing this because he's greedy or he wants something from us, they've got to be lying. Because have you seen his back? This guy is literally risking life and limb to bring us this this message. And so even after they believed in in the end of verse 2 there, he says that we declared the gospel to you in the midst of much conflict. And so the conflict followed him. And so his example was like, guys, this is going to happen. Opposition is, is going to follow us. And for us here, there's a principle Suffering and even outrageous treatment does not endanger the message. In fact, it may enhance it. Opposition is not always bad. It may actually be a good thing. Good may come of it. And if you are mistreated for sharing the good news with somebody, do not lose heart. Because when you endure in boldness with the very help of God... It may be that your perseverance and your boldness and your endurance and your tenacity through those things is actually the thing that draws the people that you hope to win. So boldness in our God. Good news is persuasive when we are bold with God's boldness and we speak his truth. Now, we've seen the boldness. Now, another accusation that seemed to be that they were leveling at Paul is that his motives were rotten. He was driven by greed. And they were saying, why else did he leave and not come back? Well, because he had trimmed the fat heads and and he had moved on. Well, Paul defends his appeal in verse 3. And uh, in in verse 3, if you're looking at it, he says, for our, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. Now, our appeal... You know, that kind of points to the fact that it wasn't just like a casual thing. It was actually something where he was appealing to them and he was was reaching out to them. He says, our appeal does not. Now, in his usual complex kind of Paul way, Paul is going to describe his motives. And here's how he's going to do it. He is going to say three nots. He's going to say, not this, not this, not this. And then he's going to say, but this. And then he's going to do it again. So he has two, two groups of those, not, 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 and then but this. This is just kind of how Paul moves forward these things. And don't worry if you didn't follow that. It's just going to sound basically like a checklist of rotten behavior, okay, rotten motives to avoid. And it characterized many of the frauds of the day. So let me just tell you up front how I think this can, can serve us, all right? Number one, if you are somebody who regularly 
gives the word of God out to people. If, if, if that's you, I think this checklist should be something that you review quite often, regularly, because, because those of us who actually get remunerated for our ministry, we're in a, a precarious position because we're in a position where we may do it for gain. Now, those of you who are sitting under any sort of teaching of the Word of God, you need to have this rotten checklist in your mind because you need to be kind of siphoning it and saying, or filtering things and saying, am I sensing uh, any wrong motivations here? And so you need to make sure that you aren't receiving a rotten message from a rotten messenger. And three, any Christian who witnesses should use it to ensure that your conduct doesn't hurt the gospel. All right? So, so basically, any one of those could apply to you, maybe several of them, and we need to keep this checklist before us. And the truth is, isn't it true, guys? We can, we can pray, we can preach, we can teach, we can, we can read our Bibles, we can give, we can attend church for all the wrong reasons. This is a great checklist. So we find this in verses 3 through 7, and the first one is this, error, error. One of the charges that Paul answers is that he spoke empty and powerless words. Now, in their minds, when there was a very, very close connection, if something was true, it had power. If it was in error, it had no power. And so he says that our words were not in error. They were true. His answer to this is that everything that he says, and he goes on to speak about this, is that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. He says, it's not error. It has been approved by God. God tested it and approved it. And he says this even continues in his current ministry. He says, God who tests presently. So he says that it was, it was approved before God even gave me the gospel. Now, we don't know exactly when in his ministry that was, but God tested him. Maybe it was a time where he was blind and waiting for God. He said, God tested me, and then he approved it, and then he continues to test me. And uh, he, he calls God to witness in verse 5 and in verse 10. He says, God is witness that I passed the test, and my speech is God approved. It's almost like one of those commercials, right? I am God, and I approve of this message. I recall um, a lesson from a woodman about uh, how, how important it is to make sure that your source is, is clean. So he said, before you, you go out to the woods and you fill up your canteen, all right, even if you're going to drop iodine tablets in it, always trace the stream as far up as you possibly can to make sure that it's pure. And he told this story about how one time they went up about 100 yards from the stream and there was a dead deer lying in the stream that they were about to fill their canteens. And so the closer you can get to the source the more sure you are that it's pure. And, and Paul is saying, my source is God himself, the living God. He says, my appeal doesn't come from error. It doesn't spring from error. It flows from God. So the source is pure. The message is pure. Because in verse 2, this is called God's gospel. And verse 13, the word of God. One of the charges that we may field from somebody who's doubting is that God's word is full of errors. So as a, chant, a church, we embrace a doctrine called inerrancy, which states this. Whatever statements the Bible affirms are fully truthful. And I always like to, to point this out. Okay, all the difficulties, the, the things that are hard to, to, to reconcile with each other, 
Okay? They're truthful when they are correctly interpreted in terms of their meaning in their cultural setting and the purpose for which they are written. All right? Which means that we have to do the hard work of, of thousands of years bridging cultures where it may just say, like, boy, we don't operate that way, or I don't understand this, or that's a you know, faith the size of the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, but we know there are smaller seeds now, but there weren't smaller seeds to those hearers. You know, so you start doing this hard work of inerrancy, and apparent errors start to resolve themselves when we set about this task responsibly, confident that the source is divine. Error. That was the first charge. Impure motives. He says not from impurity. Okay, so not error, not impurity. This applies to his motives. Uh, Now, this is going to apply, again, as we pointed out earlier, to those who are in ministry presenting the word. Well, this, this, this is very important. But also those who receive that ministry. You have to, to keep an eye out for motives. Now, it is complicated, almost impossible to discern what somebody's motives are. In fact, sometimes we don't even know what our own motives are. But later on in verses 5 and 6, it's going to point us towards something that you can observe. And anytime you see these things, it is impure motives. And those things in verse 5 and 6 are words of flattery and greed. So we're going to leave those for when they arise in the text, but, but the point that I want us to catch right here is that impure motives will come out. You will see evidence that they are there. So not error, not impure motives, and not trickery. Trickery. He says there is no attempt to deceive. Now, when one appeals, it's possible to use rhetoric and words and emotion to bypass the gatekeepers of reason. It's a way of tricking somebody into something they don't wish to do or believing something they don't wish to believe. And Paul didn't do that. He says that his speech was plain and straightforward. Not a lot of rhetorical flourishes or plays on emotion like the the orators that came through. And uh, in fact, his lack of these things over in the other city that he was in Uh, he had to go to when he fled uh, Berea was uh, in Corinth. They said, they held this against him. They said, Paul, your your speech is too plain, straightforward because we know that the words of wisdom have have got like this high sounding and everything. And he says, well, our words were not with plausible words of wisdom. So any of us who regularly guide people in the word should model after Paul's straightforward, no frills appeal. So, and likewise, if you're a listener and you sense that somebody is kind of like playing on your emotions or weaving a web to trap you into some way of thinking, you'd best be on your guard. Because I've heard it said that truth is, um, truth's most becoming guard is simplicity. So uh, we see not error, not impurity, not trickery. Now here, here is the first, but this. Okay, people pleasing. So it kind of surprises us. So Paul says, here are three things that it's not. And then he, he says, but this. Now, we might expect a remedy to error, impurity, and deceit to be truth, purity, and straight shooting. And those are good, and they did mark his team. But to remedy all that is to simply please God. So if you don't want to fall into those things, all you need to do is please God and not people. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God. 
He argues that he has such confidence in his source and the power of his message that those other things are not necessary and they're not even an option for him. There are no poles that are needed. He doesn't need to take and and massage the message to make it more palatable. All he cares about is God's approval, like a soldier who only has eyes for his commanding officer. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't care about people. Uh, Later on, he talks about how much he loves this group of people. But it does mean that this message is not up for grabs, and all kinds of nasty things happen when your motivation is to please people. And this applies to our lives as well. Like when you're trying to please people, you'll do almost anything, but especially when you're presenting God's word. So as a spiritual inventory, the minister of the gospel or a person who wishes to have an effective ministry should see that if there's a habit of just cutting corners, all right, in order to to get results, then if so, that is a sure sign of people-pleasing as a motive and God-pleasing is not in the picture. Next. Flattery and greed, okay? We mentioned that this, this is the impure motives, okay? Flattery and greed. He says we never came with words of flattery, nor with a pretext to greed. So these two are tied to those impure motives, and if you see somebody, um, there are all kinds of, like, not nice ways to say, but fawning over somebody. And the orators of the day would, would find the person that they hoped to sponsor them, and they would begin to, like, say, that's a good point, sir. Oh, the gods have given you great wisdom. And what they're trying to do, obviously, is to, to curry favor with that person. And, uh, and the purpose of flattery was to profit or greed. Notice that Paul says, you know. You do know we didn't do this. In other words, you can verify for yourself. You listen to me. You never heard me ingratiate myself to people uh, that, you know, I thought could be, benefit me. In fact, there wasn't any need to, because later he's going to talk how he and his team supported themselves. In other words, he wasn't beholden to anybody because he was supporting himself, and the people at Philippi were helping support him as well. This reminds me a little bit of uh, sometimes you'll see a reviewer who has uh, Patreon supporters. You ever seen that? You know, so it's like these micro loans so that they can go and buy the product that they're going to review so they're not beholden to the people who sent it to them. Paul's saying, I am not beholden to you for my message. Therefore, uh, you can be sure that it's not flattery and greed, that these are not even necessary. Next, human praise. He says, nor did we seek glory from people. You know, this may appear to be the same as people-pleasing, but it is different. Uh, the orators of the time, so, so you've got... Um, no, not trying to please people, but this is human praise that they're after. So sometimes the orators, they were, they were the rock stars of the day. I mean, they rolled into town and there were flyers going up, like, you know, so-and-so's coming to town. And, and so it was, it was a bit of an ego rush for these, these people. And uh, so what they were after was, sure, the, the wealth and the riches and the fame and everything, but what they really, really just lived for was the rush of people's praise, and, uh, and it's so intoxicating that he says they seek it. And Paul says, we don't seek it. That's not at all what we're about. So instead of these, yeah, this nasty inventory of flattery and grasping and getting approval highs, Paul says he gives another remedy. And we see this in verse 7, the very first phrase. But we were gentle among you. Now, we need, to, um, we need to take a moment and talk about something that we don't do very, very often, and it's a textual issue. 
So if you're looking at a copy of Scripture, you may notice next to that word um, gentle a little number. And uh, chances are your version says gentle, but if you look in the margin or follow that number, it'll say infants or um, very, very young children. So the reason is, is because there is like a single letter's difference between um, these words, between gentle and infant. And the previous word right before it is a preposition that ends with the very letter that separates them. So as the texts were, were scribing it, some of them began like they, they appended it to it. And, and so the thing is, so, so a single thing, most of your versions are going to say gentle, um, and then they're going to note that there's this textual thing, infants. Now, I actually think that infant is probably best because of how well it fits the rest of the passage. So Paul's remedy to all this grabby behavior is that we were like young children among you. And you say, ah, I've got you there. There's nothing grabbier than a young child. Right? I know, but we're talking about motivations here. So the point is on the level of motivation. An infant has very pure motives. It isn't plotting. It isn't scheming. It just wants milk. And, and that's what Paul's getting at. Unlike the frauds of the day, his missionary team was simple. What you saw was what you got. You didn't need to interpret their actions. It was all very, very plain. The good news is persuasive and effective because they had pure motives. They were, they were innocent. What you saw was what you got. You know, the truth is that people can see right through ulterior motives. And if you want the good news to be persuasive and effective, you need the purifying effect of having your motives please God and not people. So we're going to move on to this final section where we were like infants. You know, so that's kind of the not, 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 but this. We were innocent like infants. But uh, it also kicks off a bunch of comparisons about a family. He says, so we were like infants. In other words, we were innocent like infants. And then he starts talking about mothers and fathers, which kind of leads us to the third way that the good news is persuasive and effective, when you minister with family love. Okay, so, so just following here, remember he says like, okay, I came with the boldness of God. That's why it was effective. And then he says, I came with pure motives. It, it was not like those traveling teachers. It was something entirely different. Okay, so those are the two things. And now we've got this last one. It's persuasive when you minister with family love. Now, we've already noted the pure infant or the motives like an infant, um, very unlike the frauds of the day. But then the comparison quickly shifts to another analogy. He just moves quickly off of that to like a mother. Minister with a sacrificial care like a nursing mother. So if you want it to be persuasive, you've got to care for the person that you, you give it to. Uh, if, if you know your Old Testament or even have gone to Sunday school, you've heard about the prophet Jonah. Right? Jonah had a bad attitude. Uh, God had told him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach a message, and he rolled into Nineveh um, after his bout with, the, with getting spit up on land by the giant fish that God had prepared, and he came with his message, and his message was full of love. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it. That was it. God overrode his attitude and brought revival, and, and God could do that again, but generally you can expect to be most effective when you actually care about the people that you're giving the message to. In fact, if you don't care about the people, you probably won't even try. Paul and his team, they love these people. 
They use the analogy of a nursing mom with her own children. Not a wet nurse contracted to do a job and get paid, but a mom who loves her baby and gives herself to meet her child's needs. She even rearranges her life to do so. That's how that team operated. They didn't come in and roll in and preach their canned sermon and then, and then leave. <laughs> no, that's, that's not how they did it at all. They were ready to share, they say, not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Well, how did they do that? Well, number one, despite opposition and toil, they still came. And then they said, we worked day and night not to be a burden. And they labored with their hands, and it was hard work. Paul says that it was toil. In other words, this is not a, a cushy job. They were doing hard manual work. And why did they do this? It says in the verses here, because you had become very dear to us. This has been called a remarkable declaration of love. Uh, there is nothing like it in all of Scripture. These people were special to Paul in a very, very unusual way. And uh, this, this is a pastor who labors in the Word until he's bleary with people's faces in mind. This is the parent who talks when the teenager is ready, and that is 11.03 p.m., you know, like, I mean, they're exhausted, but isn't it true? Like, the teens always want to talk late at night. This is, the, this is the parent that pulls a preschooler onto their lap and enters into that little world who does whatever is necessary to care for that child. This is um, some of you who, who love internationals, who you could be chilling at home, but you're, you're going out and you're having conversations and eating. This, all of these things, we could just keep compounding examples of this, of the way that we give ourselves to those that we love. And that is what they were doing. And so they sacrifice themselves. So he says, we were innocent like children. We were loving like a mother. And then he moves on to this analogy with, with a father. And so for the father, he says, uh, the fathers are tapped as an example of loving encouragement. Now, there were kind, encouraging fathers that were familiar to these hearers. The Roman father was very, very Spartan and severe, and like especially when it came to correcting. But the, the Greek ideal, which these people would have been aware of, was for the, the father to be encouraging and, and kind and to push through and to exhort and counsel and praise. And even if you had to rebuke, do it with kindness. And I would say that this is an example of some of the better voices of culture actually sinking with a Christian message. So the concerned father, the concerned father is a cheerleader rooting them on to glory. This concerned father, Paul says, appeals, encourages, and consoles during hard times. He charges them solemnly. You know, as I was, I was reading this and thinking about it, it, it really does remind me of a coach, doesn't it? If you've ever had a coach, you know, uh, come on, guys, you know, fundamentals. Okay, get your chins up. Get in there. I mean, all, these, all this type of language, it's not over. I'm proud of you. I want you to go out there with one thing in mind. Do you hear me? Nothing. You know, so this kind of like talk, Paul's saying, this is what we were doing. We were, we were a concerned father coach rooting you guys on. So you roll all these together, and what do you get? Uh, you get someone who is really concerned that they take the right path. And you see this in, in the phrase, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The goal, 
for Paul and his team is God's own kingdom. The coach dad wants them to cross the finish line. He wants them to inherit the kingdom. And he knows in order to get there, you have to walk worthy. In other words, you can't be disqualified. You've got to stay in the game. You won't cross the finish line if you get off the course. You have to walk in a manner worthy of God. And of course, walking is a, is a common metaphor for you know, the daily steps of life. And, and worthy, means, uh, worthy means living in such a way that everything that you do honors God. So, so all of my activities, all of my relationships, all of these things are done with an eye of honoring the Father. And he says you have to do this so you'll be worthy to inherit this end-time kingdom in which they'll reflect God's own glory. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the work of faith, the work that is motivated by faith. You're not working for your faith. Your work is motivated by faith. This is very similar. Walking worthy is evidence that Christ has done a work of grace in your life. It is a badge for entrance. But if any glory could be earned by the person who's walking worthy, uh, it wouldn't be their glory. It'd be, this is God's glory. He says it's God's own glory. So he calls them to believe and be sanctified so that he gets all the glory. So if we want our good news to be persuasive and effective, we, we have to minister with this kind of family love. I can care. This, we, we know the devil's shooting real bullets. That, that the person is an eternal being and, and has a soul, and so we care for them. And so we come in with, with pure motives like a child. We care for them sacrificially like a mother. We encourage them like a father. You know, there's always going to be uh, Elmer Gantries out there. They're out there. We see them in the news. We've seen high-profile people where it just turns out that they were, I mean, some of them are in jail today. And, and they're going to be out there. So our job is to not be one, number one. And number two is to make sure that this church is a really hard place for an Elmer to live, all right? This is what we have to do. Um, an unbelieving world does not need more professional Christians. It needs, it needs believers that live in such a way that the good news isn't marred by their message. In their visit to Thessalonica, Paul and his team modeled what this looks like, and, and they showed us really what the power of a pure message coupled with a life of integrity, what that looks like. And you know, let me encourage you today uh, to take heart. Be faithful with your witness. If you're out there you know, taking, taking hits for your faith to the people that, even from the people that you're trying to love into the kingdom, uh, realize that that opposition is not against God's will. It's very much in the pattern. In fact, your perseverance and endurance may even be the thing that eventually draws them or at least marks in their mind, like here was somebody who lived for something more and I don't even understand it. Um, let me encourage you, uh, if, if you... If you're giving out the, the message, don't, don't get all smart and tricky with it, all right? It's, it's not your, just be faithful with the word. If you find yourself trying to like, you know, pull your punches because you're afraid it's unpopular, uh, don't do that. Don't spend too much time worrying whether someone is going to like it or if your method, method is really, really the, the most cutting edge. Just, just keep your eye on God and be faithful when you present it. And, and finally, be all in. You know, 
the last thing that the world needs is a cool, detached person just kind of like downloading truth who cares less about if they respond or not. Boy, they need to know that, that you care about them and that you would be heartbroken if you walk into the kingdom and they're not with you. I tell you, if, if, we, if we take that stance, then, then the gospel is going to be persuasive and effective. And uh, that kind of life is a very, very powerful thing. And, and that is the kind of witness that we need to hold. Let's pray that, that God would give us grace to have it. Father, thank you that um, Paul's ministry was not in vain. Thank you that this gospel is your gospel, that it flows from you, that it is pure. And thank you that it really is up to us only to be, to be faithful. So Lord, I ask that you would have your hand on this church, that we would speak your words of truth, and that we would persevere, and that we would love, that we would love people really hard. And Lord, I pray that we would see um, more stories like we saw today of people coming into your kingdom because, because they heard your truth and they were loved. So we ask your blessing on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.